This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and this is Episode 7 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we feature an exclusive interview with the professor who is leading Oxford University's team working around the clock to develop a vaccine against COVID-19. He says one is now in sight and probably ready for release before the end of the year. But the Ebola and malaria specialist does fret that without changed behavior, COVID-19 could wreak fearful damage in Africa. On a brighter note, a numbers man reckons infection numbers and mortality percentages are being exaggerated. And then we close off this episode with the Stay the F at Home campaign gaining ground in the United States. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, confirmed global infections rose 23% Saturday to just under 700,000, with deaths rising to just over 32,000. The United States has the most confirmed infections at just over 125,000, with Italy at 92,500, both still recording infections rising at over 20% a day. China's infections remain static at around 82,000, and Sunday it reopened domestic flights to the Hubei province. That's where the disease originated. At just over 10,000 deaths, Italy now accounts for around a third of those globally, with Spain at 6,500, double that reported by China. There have been 2,200 deaths in the United States, with a third of those in New York City. The U.S.'s top infections disease official, Dr. Anthony Fauci, warned on Sunday that COVID-19 could kill up to 200,000 Americans. He urged New York City residents to not travel to other states. After floating the idea of isolating New York to contain the spread of the virus, U.S. President Donald Trump backed away from imposing a quarantine. South Africa's confirmed infections rose in line with the 30% a day rate to 1,187 Saturday, around half of them in Gauteng and a quarter in the Western Cape. Among those infected are 13 health workers, six from Gauteng and five from the Free State. South Africa is one of 10 countries that have confirmed participation in the World Health Organization's Public Health Emergency Solidarity Trial. The South African team of 30 academics, clinicians and researchers from eight universities is led by Wits University professors Helen Rees and Jeremy Nell. They will be testing the impact on COVID-19 patients of drugs identified by the WHO as the most effective so far, including an Ebola trial drug, Remdesivir, an HIV treatment drug, Lopinavir, and Chloroquine, which is used to treat malaria. President Cyril Ramaphosa enjoyed an uplifting photo op in Polokwane Sunday when he officially ended the quarantine of 112 South African citizens who'd been airlifted from Wuhan, where COVID-19 originated. All of the evacuees tested negative. The country continues to gear up for an expected wave of infections, 
with the six existing testing laboratories in academic hospitals soon to be supplemented by 47 mobile laboratories, which will be able to test up to 30,000 daily by end April. A vaccine to prevent COVID-19 is in sight. That's the message from the director of the Jenner Institute at the University of Oxford, Professor Adrian Hill. His team has started enrolling the first volunteers to test a vaccine that the institute has developed. Professor Hill, whose team successfully developed vaccines for Ebola and malaria, told our London correspondent, Linda van Tilburg, he's optimistic the COVID-19 vaccine would be ready for large-scale rollout before the end of the year. Well, we're at an exciting stage. We just opened the trial to recruitment two days ago. We've been overwhelmed. Thousands of people have expressed interest, and I think that just reflects what we know, that uh, there's a real desire out there to help design a vaccine and make a vaccine available for lots of reasons, obviously to prevent disease and death from this dreadful virus, but also to let a much larger number of people out of being locked in or locked down or whatever we want to call it. It's uh, really the exit strategy for this pandemic. What is different about your trial and your vaccine? Yeah, there, there are lots of people trying to make vaccines. And, of course, the problem is that generally it takes many years to design, test a vaccine, bring it into clinical trials, go through various phases and eventually get it licensed for use. And we in Oxford have experience of this uh, being done much faster than usual. When we were helping out with the Ebola emergency back in 2014, we tested four of the Ebola vaccines that went to Africa, one of which was tested successfully there. And that was easier than this because those Ebola vaccines existed. They simply hadn't been tested clinically. So we moved very rapidly into clinical trials. This time at Oxford University, we've had to make a vaccine from scratch. Uh, which started in the middle of January when the sequence of the DNA or genome of the virus was was released. And it's quite remarkable to have it manufactured roundabout now and ready to go into the clinic in about a few weeks' time. So this has been uh, extraordinarily fast. It's luckily a vaccine type we know a lot about. It's been in clinical trials for lots of other diseases. So we know that it looks safe. We have to show that for COVID as well. But we should be able to do that fairly quickly. So that's the stage that we're at recruiting for the trial. So this trial is happening in Oxford at our clinical center near to the Jenner Institute. We have asked for volunteers aged 18 to 55, and that's very standard. We're looking for people who are fit and well. We are uh, very experienced at doing what these are called. These are phase one trials and then measuring immune response that produces. And one of the advantages of this vaccine type is that we probably only need to give one dose. And that's advantageous for lots of reasons. It's quicker to vaccinate. It's less expensive. It's logistically easier. So that's the first approach to see how well we get on with just a single dose. And over that trial span of several weeks, we'll be looking for about 500 people to vaccinate, going from one individual to three individuals and dosing larger and larger numbers. You mentioned how fast this was to, to, to get it to this, this stage, because normally you would be testing on animals first, but apparently you're doing both at the same time this time around. 
Pretty well. We started on animal testing a couple of months ago, and uh, we've been discussing with the experts in this area, the regulators, what would be an appropriate time to start human testing, given the scale of this emergency. And they've been very sensible and very helpful. And uh, as I say, starting in a few weeks sounds about right. And I think that is the right balance. Most vaccines are very safe. We're pretty confident this one will be too, but we have to show that. And it's not that we've taken any shortcuts. We've done all the things you would normally do. It's just been possible to do them much more quickly because the committees that need to review all of this have met immediately. The regulators have been asking us for information rather than we waiting for their decisions. It's been very interactive and, and very, uh, very encouraging, really. So, so do you have any time scale on, on if it proves to be successful, when it can be rolled out en masse, you know, to a lot of people? Sure. So this depends on manufacturing scale. And this is a vaccine type that we can manufacture in very large amounts. So millions of doses would certainly be feasible. The problem we're facing is that we need more than millions of doses, hundreds of millions, maybe even billions. And, of course, it depends how this pandemic proceeds. Our, our real concern is that we have keep enough vaccine doses to vaccinate firstly high-risk people. They would be the first priority, those with underlying disease at high risk of infection. Then the general population. And of course, the key question is where, because the vaccine is needed in Europe, it's needed in North America, and increasingly it's needed in Africa. And our real nightmare is that this could take off in Africa in the way that it did in Wuhan in China and has in Italy and so on and now in Spain. And of course, in Africa, often widely, the health services are not as well funded and resourced. Public health infrastructure may not be as good. So there's, there's the potential for a much more serious pandemic and much greater loss of life in many parts of Africa than in Europe or the Americas, which is very well. If we can bring it to South Africa, we've seen something quite strange in our country that people are not taking it too seriously, especially under our African community who kind of says it's a it's a white rich person's disease and they're the people that brought it over. So what kind of message would you give to South Africa, you know, people who are basically ignoring the advice they get? I would remind them that uh, two months ago, people in Europe and America were pointing out that this was a Chinese problem and was unlikely to be significant in Europe or America. And uh, in America, less than a month ago, people were playing down the importance of this problem. So it's very easy to get it wrong and underestimate what just takes time to build up. The virus will keep on growing. It will keep on spreading unless people can practice isolation or we get a good vaccine. This is going to cause many, many, many more deaths. There's no reason why it shouldn't spread in Africa. The flu vaccine you have to get every year because there's a different strain. What happens? Is this for a specific strain? Can it mutate? It can mutate, and people have looked at that. It doesn't mutate very much. It's not as quick as flu in terms of changing. Luckily, what's been seen so far should not interfere with vaccines, at least in the immediate future. And remember, we're trying to put out a fire here. We're, we're dealing with this year. We want a vaccine this year, not next year. That would be in many ways too late. So, you know, the target is to be vaccinating in the second half of this year. And we will see how many doses we can manufacture. But the more financial support we get and can raise for manufacture, the more doses will be available.
for this vaccine, would it be different for different geographies or would the same vaccine apply to everybody across the world? Uh, We believe it will be absolutely fine in every territory because the virus has not diverged very much. And frankly, we don't have time to make different strain-specific vaccines at the moment. Luckily, I don't think nobody thinks we need to, but that's being looked at and watched very carefully. Viruses tend to mutate, but we've had a a few months to look at how quickly this one mutates, and it's not too long. You've worked in Africa before, as you said, with the Ebola virus. So my day job is making malaria vaccines. I've done that for 20 years. There's been a lot of progress in that field and some very promising vaccines coming through now. We've been doing our own clinical trials recently in Burkina Faso and in Kenya, and we'll extend that to other countries. So, yes, huge progress in malaria vaccines. That's all very exciting. We didn't expect this would turn up. And uh, just as with Ebola, the teams uh, in Africa that uh, were working on malaria and other diseases rapidly turned to vaccinating against Ebola and doing those trials. And we are beginning to see the same thing happening in Africa. So it's definitely moving in that direction. Numbers in both of those countries, Kenya and Burkina Faso, are rising very quickly. And of course, South Africa, unfortunately, with the biggest number of all so far. So so we are worried about people who have HIV and also the TB patients. Well, that is yet to be seen, but it's a reasonable supposition. Certainly being immunosuppressed in any way, and HIV is a common way of being immunosuppressed uh, is the problem for dealing with uh, many other infections, including famously tuberculosis, of course. So we will be watching that very carefully. Um, Certainly lung disease or pre-existing lung disease is a very high risk factor, and so is older age. But in South Africa, those factors may be different, and I think they need to be looked at again. When will you know when the trials have been effective? What irritates us is out there in the press is the idea it will take at least a year and maybe probably 18 months to have a vaccine out there. We think it can be done faster than that. We're convinced that if our vaccine works, we can be manufacturing later this year. On the other hand, that's the best case scenario. And with most vaccines, there are risks that it doesn't go to plan. Luckily, the world is developing dozens of vaccines. Two are in clinical trials already. We maybe the third, and things are moving very quickly. And the reason it's important to know that there might be a vaccine later this year is that it affects your management strategy and how you're going to deal with the lockdown and so on. If there is a vaccine in sight, then people are likely to be more willing to practice good containment if there is a solution at the end that they can see coming. So I'm pretty optimistic about vaccines. I just uh, like people to take this seriously because lots of people months ago said this was a problem for somewhere else. It's nearly completely global now. It's going to spread even more. So just because there are a small number in any country at the moment doesn't mean it's going to, it's not going to take off in that country. So people need, it's much easier to put this out when there are only hundreds of cases, not thousands or tens of thousands. So we really must try. Do you think in the UK they didn't take it seriously enough from the beginning? I think we were a bit slow, to be honest, in uh, responding. And uh, a lot of people thought that it wouldn't really come in very much from China where it started out. And that is just clearly wrong. There seems to be a reluctance to really lock down places like New York where it's mushrooming. Yes, New York has been an awful problem, absolutely. 
But, you know, we need to learn this lesson now, not wait to see further examples. And it's hard. It's not fun being not able to go out and shop maybe once a week or whatever, but it's it's going to be worthwhile, particularly if there's a way out for the vaccine. Do you think the cases are going to start coming down now that we are on lockdown in the UK? And South Africa has even a you know more severe lockdown. We're not seeing that. A severe lockdown should work in weeks, but we haven't had that for three weeks yet. So the numbers are going to go up anyway. The question is not will they carry on going up. It's really when will they plateau. And we're looking at April or May for the peak, so we're, we're not there yet, even with the lockdown. Well, it's over to London now, and uh, really nice to be talking to Dion Ghos, who is the Chief Investment Officer at Credo. Dion, uh, I've, I was fascinated by a piece that you wrote about COVID-19, not least because it's very personal. Your mother's 93 years old, so I suppose you could say in the highest risk group uh, that there is possible for this disease. But you unpacked it in, in some interesting ways. Just as far as your mom's concerned, is she okay? Uh, yes, thank you, Alec. Uh, I spoke to her this morning. She's fine. Um, she's obviously concerned and has been for the last month or so, but, but all good. Thank you. Mm. All right. So you've had a look at the mathematics of what we've been told about COVID-19, and they do seem to be somewhat exaggerated. Yes, Alec, and I, I want to start by saying two things. One is I'm not a medical expert, and I'm not really commenting on the disease um, in terms of how bad it is or my fear. I fully respect um, that it is bad for many. And, and that's the second point, is that I'm, I'm not making light of it, which is why the piece that I wrote, uh, I start by referring to my mother, who is in this risk category. When it comes to the maths and the stats around it and the way that this is reported, I do think there's a, le- a lot of hyperbole and a lot of misleading reporting, frankly. Um, and that's what I just try to address in my piece uh, in, in sort of three main areas. Starting on the first one, uh, and that's the, the, the rapidity with which the disease is spreading. Well, we know that from John Hopkins University, it's now nearly 700,000 today, uh, from yeah. around mid-500s yesterday. So there is definitely an exponential growth in this. And I guess if one extrapolates that into the future, the figures do look very scary. Well, yes, but what I try and say my piece is these numbers, you know, 500,000 a day or two ago and 700,000 today, I don't think that tells you much about how the disease is spreading. Uh, and my assumption, frankly, is that if you look at a global population of what they've got, something like 7 billion, there's probably several million people today, maybe tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of people who have the disease or might have had it in the last month or so. Um, so the fact that we go from 500 to in, in, in a couple of days is not a function of the spread of the disease. It's a function of the testing. We, we haven't been testing until recently. And now we're going gangbusters. We're testing all the time. We're testing thousands of people per day in the UK and in other Western countries. And that is why we're finding these cases. And, and bear in mind that the only people who do get tested, in a place like the UK certainly, are people who present several symptoms and have done so for several days. Uh, if I have uh, symptoms tomorrow morning, the, the NHS will tell me to self-isolate for seven days before I come back and, and I qualify for a test. So by the time the people go for a test, there's a very high chance that they will test positively. Um, and as I say, they are doing tens of thousands of tests now per day in each country in the Western world. What is interesting is that we know that most people are asymptomatic, so they don't actually show anything more than perhaps just a, a very mild uh, flu. And in your piece you wrote about you perhaps also have had COVID-19 already without even knowing it. 
Well, I mean, I, I did have quite a bad flu in January, and then I actually checked my uh, logbook this morning because I'm a runner and I was into ocean training. And I, and I missed eight days running in January because of the worst flu I've had for at least five years. Um, and I had all the symptoms that I read about in, in the newspapers today. And it started with a sore throat and a fever, and I felt quite pup for a day or two. Um, and then I had a horrible cough for about seven days, and after that, um, a lingering cough for, for another few weeks. So does that make it coronavirus? I don't know, and maybe I'll never know. Maybe there'll be a test soon, and I can prove that I've had it, and I've got the antibodies in my system now. What was interesting is uh, on Tuesday, the 21st of January, I got back to the office, and a colleague sitting next to me was following these things. He was joking about it. He said, you haven't been to Wuhan recently, have you? And when he made that joke to me on the 21st of January, that's the first I heard of the coronavirus. I was probably a little bit late. But my colleague, um, who's a, the senior researcher at our team, you know, he's paid to be on top of these things. So he was already looking at the coronavirus then. Few people were focusing on it. There was a week of the World Economic Forum, and the news was just starting to come out. The first deaths in China was starting to, to happen around that time. It's interesting as well that we're now hearing about famous people who've got the virus. Uh, and I suppose the, the point, again, that you make is that how come it's missed the whole population and gone straight to the people like Tom Hanks and uh, Prince Charles and so on? Exactly. I mean, uh, there was a tweet uh, a couple of weeks ago, actually, that made that point. He said, how can this virus you know, affect the wife of the Canadian Prime Minister, Tom Hanks, as you mentioned, um, Mikhail Arteta, you know, Arsenal's um, manager, and now sort of half the UK government, I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating slightly, but there's quite a few people uh, in government that, that now have it. Some royalty, you've mentioned Prince Charles. Um, and most of us, you know, don't have it. We don't know that we've had it. And the point being that Tom Hanks, you know, when he has his first cough in Australia, he's on a multi-million dollar acting gig. So he gets a test with each hour. Um, and then they find that he's got coronavirus. He can self-isolate for two weeks under COVID. And thankfully, he says it wasn't that bad. But you and I will get the cough and, and we probably won't get tested. And, and you know, it will come and go. Uh, and hopefully we'll be fine. I, I know it doesn't go and go in all cases. Once again, I don't want to make light of it. I know it's a horrible disease for some, um, and there's some horrific deaths, and there's some bad teens coming out of hospitals around the world, and we can talk about that separately. So I'm not making light of it, but for most people, it certainly um, is not a killer disease. But let's talk about that, the mortality rates. What are you making about the reported figures? Well, once again, you know, people divide the number of deaths by the number of uh, uh, confirmed cases, uh, into the number of confirmed cases, you know, so in Italy, for example, um, the number might be, I don't know what, what it is now, probably about 9,000, I haven't checked it over the weekend, but they've had something like 9,000 deaths, I think, um, between nine and 10,000 probably, um, and they've had about 9,000 confirmed cases in Italy, so people take the 9,000 deaths divided by the 90,000 confirmed cases and it's a 10% mortality rate. Um, but that's 90,000 confirmed cases. Now, I'm convinced, based on what I've said before on this call, that there must be hundreds of thousands, perhaps a few million people in, in, in Italy that had the disease or who may have the disease today. So you've got to divide the 9,000 by the few hundred thousand people, by the million or more people that had the disease to, to get something more accurate in terms of mortality rate. And I've seen people model this, and I'm not talking, talking about investment people, I'm talking about um, people who are epidemiologists, which is quite a big word for a booty to say. <laughs> And the estimate is that it could be a fraction of 1% ultimately. I mean, that's on the low side. It could be more than that. We don't know, frankly. I think that's, that's something we need to recognize as well. Nobody really knows what the number is. It is too early to tell. Um, but certainly the kind of numbers that do get reported, for the most part, are exaggerated um, and boil down to, as I say, not only bad reporting, but hyperbole. The problem for South Africa is the high percentage of the population who have HIV AIDS or who 
are TB sufferers. And if this virus were to get amongst them, that's the theory anyway, uh, we could have very high mortality rates here. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, frankly, I think that is a that is that that is a real risk and it's a real concern. And I, you know, I, there's not much I can add to that, uh, except to say this: that I think the lockdown that happened in South Africa today, um, on balance, a lot of people that you refer to uh, are, you know, living um, not in luxury homes with a big garden where you can walk the dog inside, but they're living in informal settlements um, where they are living, you know, right next to each other, perhaps sharing sanitation uh, and the like. And therefore, I'm not sure the lockdown is going to help them. Uh, either. Um, I think their bigger concerns are the TB and other things that you refer to. But yes, once the virus does get hold of that sector of the population, you know, I think it will be a big concern. There's no doubt about that. We've also seen uh, other countries really concerned about what's been going on in Italy. Again, relatively speaking, uh, there is a different demographic there than there would be, say, in, in Africa. Well, yes, the Italian population, you know, as, as listeners will know, um, is one of the oldest populations in the world. It is more than 7% of the Italian population is over 80 years old. And therefore, we know that the coronavirus and COVID-19 affects elderly people more than younger people. And that's part of the reason, I think, we've had a fairly high mortality rate in Italy. Um, we will have to see this play out in the countries. The only other country that can look at it at this stage in terms of the maturity of the disease, if you like, is China, but a lot of people don't trust the numbers coming out of China. So it will be interesting to see um, Spain and France are closest to Italy on the curve in terms of timing. Um, and we should know within a week or 10 days how similar the experience is in Spain and France compared to Italy, where the, the sort of acceleration of the disease and the deaths, frankly, seems to have uh, slowed down um, in Italy. I'm not saying, you know, the crisis is over, but certainly it's not growing exponentially anymore. So... With your day job as the Chief Investment Officer at Credo, are you now looking at these markets uh, and the sell-off that we've seen and believing that perhaps it's been overdone? I know there's been a huge bounce in the past week. Uh, supposedly that was the shortest ever bear market and we're supposedly back into a bull market. How are you reading that? Yeah, that's very difficult to say, Alec. You know, markets are only ever obvious and easy um, in, in hindsight. Um, so I'll phrase it like this. I, I have no doubt that we are living through you know, a very interesting period in, in not only the world, but certainly financial markets. Uh, and at some point, whether we are there now or whether it will still be some weeks or months, at some point, um, I am, you know, I have no doubt um, that markets will have overreacted and we will, in hindsight, realize we had a once in a lifetime buy an opportunity. But whether we are there now, whether we have seen the worst, I think it's, it's simply too, too early to say. You know, I think a couple of things. The, the U.S. is really only going into this now, and I think with the kind of news flow we're likely to see coming out of, out of the U.S., the U.K. as well, but certainly the U.S. Uh, in the next few weeks, you know, I, I still expect some turbulence and volatility and, you know, some up days, hopefully, but certainly some down days again. So who knows, you know, when the bottom will be or whether we've had it already. Um, only time will tell. The answer, unfortunately, at any given point in time is unknowable. Most healthcare systems are struggling to cope with the outbreak of the coronavirus with a shortage of surgical masks, gloves, ventilators, hand sanitizers and hospital beds. The former acting administrator for Medicare and Medicaid services in the United States, Andy Slavitt, told our partners at Bloomberg, Lisa Abramovich and Paul Sweeney, that if many people are infected with the coronavirus at the same time, it would overwhelm 
health systems. Governments aim to flatten the curve, as is happening here in South Africa. But the only way that that can be done is for people to self-isolate, which has become a hashtag on U.S. social media, stay the F home. So everybody's going to be hearing all sorts of data, and we should all appreciate the fact that this is a novel virus. It hasn't been with us for that long. And every data is a piece, a piece of data is only a data point. And so over time, we'll have, I think, reliable forms of data. But as you listen to this data, I think we should be closer to, um, I wouldn't say anybody should panic, but we should be closer to panic than we should be to calm. Um, on the scale of 1 to 10, uh, we should be at an 8. We shouldn't be. So I tend to say every piece of data that I see, um, I, I want to understand it and assume uh, the challenges until proven otherwise. Because in this environment where, you're, where we have no immune system for this virus, where a number of people have underlying medical conditions, where we have a number of seniors to whom this is a lethal condition, better to be safe. And if we're wrong, and if the 18% turns out to be 10%, um, hallelujah. The, someone can go back and criticize the people who said 18% later, but I certainly, I certainly would rather behave uh, on the much more cautious side. So, Andy, just broadly define, can you give us your sense of kind of how you think our U.S. healthcare system is prepared for what could be uh, a surge in patients uh, from this virus? So we're not prepared, uh, but but let me put that in context. Um, you know that that expression um, they didn't build the church for for Easter Sunday uh, is one that comes to mind. Um, you know if we built hospitals in New York eight times the size, uh, then we would be um, you, know, we, you know that wouldn't make a lot of sense. But there are places where we should be better prepared. Um, things like surge capacity, the ability to bring um, hospitals, um, ships, uh, equipment, um, safety gear. Um, we, you know, we should have been had, we should have had much higher stockpiles of that. I will tell you that those recommendations have been strongly made in certain quarters for a long, long time, um, and I think dismissed um, candidly by this administration. Although I'm not trying to take a shot at them, I think it's just a fact. Um, uh, but but I will also tell you that even if we had prepared. Um, I still believe, even if we were better prepared, uh, the, the scope of the virus is such that I think we still would have been uh, overwhelmed. So we're going to see a lot of parts of our hospital system under strain, most particularly the people who work in the healthcare system on the front line, who I think are, are going to end up being our real heroes in all of this because they are uh, going to be operating uh, often without a playbook, um, seeing a lot of things that is that are contagious, with not without the best protective gear at times because our supplies are running running low, and and they're going to be overwhelmed. And it's that group of people that I think we really have to demonstrate an immense amount of gratitude for, uh, because they're really going to be the ones that are going to have to help us get through this. Andy, one other thing that uh, Governor Cuomo said was that he expects the virus to peak in New York State in 45 days which seems like quite a long time from now for it to peak. Can you give us a sense of, if that is the case, what the scope of cases could potentially be and whether asking Americans to stay home actually will help alleviate that or at least uh, mitigate that? So it's really interesting. 
Uh, you, you all, of course, have heard all of these, the expression flatten the curve. Yeah. Right. All of America is becoming familiar with that expression. Hashtag flatten the curve. Yeah, it's, it's, it's trending. Yes. Right. It's, it's, it's trending and it's trendy. Um, maybe there should be clothing lines called uh, flattening your curves or something. But oh, the, Lord. <laughs> the, oh, Lord. Exactly. We're going to go all kinds of fun places with this virus. We're going to have to have some humor, um, in my opinion. But um, the the uh, the truth is that implication of that means we would rather it actually take longer than have it shorter. Uh, and I know that that's a weird thing to get our hands around because that means that the social disruption, the economic disruption will go on for longer. But if we can, if we socially isolate, um, we will reduce the number of cases to your prior question that, that the healthcare system has to handle. Uh, but it will also mean that uh, this is going to go on for a longer, a longer period of time. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we should be okay with that. Um, because we will be able to build immunity to the virus, eventually um, have some herd immunity, eventually um, have some uh, 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 drugs that can combat it. But um, it only it will only work. The only way it works is if people socially isolate. And, and I hate that expression uh, because I don't want people to socially isolate. I want people to physically isolate. But it only works if people hashtag stay home. Or if you prefer, stay the F home, as is, I've seen trending on Twitter. That's the most important thing people can do right now. Andy, how about the testing? Uh, where are we in terms of getting test kits broadly disseminated across the country so we can really get start getting accurate uh, count as to the scope of this? Well, candidly, we're, we're well behind where we should be. Um, you know, the, we had the, our first um, case the same day as South Korea, and their test their tests were available ten days prior to that first test, and we are, so we're, you know, roughly a month or more behind uh, where we need to be. And, you know, now I believe we're doing all of the right things to ramp up production. I think you'll see production uh, double uh, and tests double um, across the country this week, um, and I think that's a good thing. Um, it will we'll still be well short if you look at a, on a per capita basis uh, for the rest of the world. We'll still be in last place. And then I, I, I will say this. Um, we will see, I suspect we'll see a bump, but we will, our supply chain, the things that allow us to do these tests, because it's not just a cute swab. There's a bunch of things you need in the lab, reagents and machines and so forth. Those supplies are in demand across the world. And there's only so many of them and they can only be made so fast. So I suspect we will have a surge in tests and that'll be good news. But I think they will then become in short supply again. Andy, uh, just talking about hashtag flatten the curve and hashtag stay the F home um, and all the sort of social media presence, you know, there's sort of uh, sort of gallows humor out there, people coming up with innovative ways to pass the time in their homes as they isolate. But there's also talk about uh, a rise in anxiety and a, and a rise in sort of uh, this feeling of fear. And you said, you know, on the scale from panic to panic, panic. <laughs> what, I mean, how can you can you give people a sense of well, perhaps if people take it really seriously, it won't have to be the catastrophe that you're saying. Yeah. Well, look, this will end. This will end. We will get through this. The and we will have a period in our lives that we'll always look back on. That will be, um, you know, will it be 45 days? Will it be 90 days? Will it be uh, underneath history? We'll, 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 we don't know that now, but we'll know that. Um, and, and we will always look back on this. 
so it will it will be over. We should just be thinking about this: is every life lost, just like every life life lost to the flu or a heart condition, um, we should try to prevent. So um, that means some sacrifice. That means staying in. That means doing some things differently. That means and 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 I and with that comes some anxiety, financial anxiety, social anxiety, yeah. um, all of those things. And, and it's it's okay to uh, to to feel uh, those things because the future is uncertain while we're in it. Right. But we will get through this. This has been episode seven of Inside COVID nineteen. Until tomorrow, I'm Alec Hogg. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.